Hello, and welcome to the Motivate Change podcast, inspiring heart disease survivors to live a longer, healthier life. I'm your host, Devin Brzezinski, a fellow heart disease survivor and occupational therapy student here to help you navigate a world of uncertainty after a cardiac event. And I am so excited for today's episode because I have Roma Duick here. She is a fellow heart disease survivor here to share her story with us. So welcome, Roma. Thank you so much for having me, Devin. Absolutely. Thanks for hopping on. And I was so happy when you reached out to me um, to speak on your podcast. And I, I learned that you also had a congenital heart defect different from mine. Um, no. But do you want to go ahead and share a little bit about your diagnosis and how you got here? Sure. So I was born with a condition that is sort of generically known as single ventricle. And single ventricle can be a lot of things. So there is hypoplastic left heart. Um, in my case, I had what's called tricuspid atresia. There's a few different types of single ventricle conditions. And pretty much all of us patients will end up getting the same surgery, which is called a Fontan. So that, therefore, they then blanket us and they say that all of you are Fontan patients. But, but really, what we're all born with is some dysfunction and there's some sort of limitation in a single ventricle. So however everyone's looks like, it starts differently, but they end up kind of getting um, their circulation redone in a similar fashion. So that's called a Fontan patient. As far as Fontan patients go, they are thinking worldwide on an estimate level. I mean, it's it's really it's tough numbers because it's a bit it's a bit newer, but worldwide they think there's currently about fifty thousand people that are Fontan patients, and they would say statistically right now every five in one hundred thousand births are a single ventricle birth. Hmm. So that's that's how common it is. It's not very common, but it's not completely not common. So it does happen. Right. Because when we look at congenital heart defects in general, it's approximately 40,000 infants are born with a congenital heart defect. So mm -hmm. of those 40,000, you're saying that even a smaller percentage is classified under this Fontan's um, category. Correct. So, so the Fontan condition, essentially, if you're born with a single ventricle, that's one of the most serious congenital heart defects that you can be born with. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there's not much worse than you can get. There is one, but not many. <laughs> so yeah, there is some, but I mean, we don't want to encourage this group, that's for sure. But uh, <laughs> there are some born in this group. So when I was born, uh, it was very obvious that something was wrong. I was born in the 70s when you didn't have pre-testing in the womb and you didn't have right out of the right out of the hop, you wouldn't know that there was something wrong. But I was born blue. My lips uh, were blue. My fingertips were blue. There was dark circles around my eyes. So right away, there was really strong indicators that something was wrong. And that's when they had to send me to a larger center because I was born in a small town, larger center for testing to see what exactly was wrong. Um, again, born in the seventies. So, so this procedure in itself was in its infancy as was, um, open heart surgery on pediatrics really was, was so new. So there was, uh, definite challenges because I'm an infant 
born with a condition that they just don't treat yet. So I was before my time. What can I say? <laughs> they uh, typically back in the 70s and 80s, prior to moving towards the full Fontan procedure, a lot of patients who are in my age group had what's called um, a shunt. They had shunts on both sides. So basically they took out their main, I believe, arteries in their arms and rerouted them back to their, uh, to their lungs for a second pickup of oxygen because we were blue. And the goal for them at the time was they were waiting for the patients to get to what they considered optimal health or their peak level in order to operate because the Fontan procedure was still in its infancy and there was still very, very high risks associated. So they were kind of gauging at what point are you, you're gaining weight, you're, you're getting healthy, you're moving forward to then when are you going on the downside of the peak? So that's, that was always what they're measuring. So I had a shunt when I was zero and a shunt when I was five, and it was able to uh, keep me going and growing essentially till I was nine. As a child, I was very inactive. So my mom said when she would put me on a baby blanket with my toys, if I couldn't reach the toys, I didn't get the toys. So I would never, she could put me on there for an hour. I wouldn't move because I was just so exhausted. Mm. So I mean, kind of handy for babysitting purposes, but other than that, not ideal. <laughs> so, um, so I, I mean, I was, I was getting stronger, but it was a, a long road. So having the, I had the Fontan procedure, the original Fontan procedure at age nine. Uh, today's stats, they are actually. Um, statistically, they're now operating on most Fontan patients between the ages of two and four. So they're finding that that younger age is, is a better target zone. But at the time, it was so new and revelatory that they just, okay, well, let's get to her peak and let's hope we, we maximize as much as we can. Right. So, I, probably the idea behind that was like trying to get you strong enough so that way you could live through the surgery because it was yeah. just kind of unknown at that point in time. Yeah. And I mean, I'm in Canada. So at the time they didn't even have a surgeon who could perform this surgery. So they were considering like, do we send me to Europe? Do we send me to the States? Like, what are the options, you know? And they ended up recruiting a French doctor who came to Vancouver and started these Fontan procedures on pediatrics. And so out of, I was the third patient that he'd done a Fontan on and the first to live. And out of the first six, still the first to live. So it really was a high risk procedure at the time. It is really cleaned up now and the risks are much minimized, but at the time it was very high risk. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, for some reason, the nurses seem to think they should tell me that at a young age. So I went into the surgery knowing it was a very high risk procedure. So at nine years old, I'm preparing myself for what what is this going to be so i'm willing out my teddy bears who gets what you know like what's the plan because i might not make it home again and i'm having to think about these things and the reality is someone like myself has been terminal forever so we do think differently we do think about our possessions differently we think about our life values differently because we're essentially always terminal yeah, so i mean at that time i was terminal ish, you know, as terminal as I can get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I lived and I did really well. 
I was in the hospital for about two months because I'm in Canada and we keep us longer in the hospital here. Um, so I wanted to share better health insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to share with your audience one of the fun things that looking back, I thought how creative, but no one told me to do this. This was just something that I did is when you're in the hospital for a long period of time, it can become very depressing, very hard. And it's, it's hard to stay positive. It's hard to feel like you want to get out of bed and do the physio walks and do all the things that you need to do to recover. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of the things that I would do sometimes occasionally when I was nine and recovering is once I had removed the majority of my wires and, and all the cords and everything is I would get dressed up in my street clothes. So I would put on like some really cool leggings and, you know, I bow in my hair and I would just be all jazzed up and I would, I mean, you're still fatigued because you've just had heart surgery, but I would sit in the visitor chair and I would pretend that I was visiting my friend who is the heart patient. Sometimes I would even turn on my ghetto blaster because back then we had ghetto blasters. So I would turn on my ghetto blaster and, you know, sort of dance around. I mean, I really wouldn't have an energy to dance, but I could sort of dance in my chair. I'm assuming that's a boom box of sorts. That was a boom box. That was a boom box, yes. (laughs) And so, you know, I would pretend that I was visiting or pretend that I was somewhere else or someone else because it gave me that escape, you know, and Mm. the nurses would come in and they say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just visiting my friend. She's very sick, but I'm just a visitor. And so it gave me that escapism that I apparently needed. So it, it helped me. It, it kept me really in a positive mindset, even when I was a child to, you know, not be the patient. Mm-hmm. And uh, refresh my memory. Are you an only child or do you know I am? I'm in the middle of a lot of children, <laughs> <laughs> but I am the only one in my family that has any heart condition. So okay, it's just, I just won the lotto on that one. Yes. when I was just thinking of you like getting dressed up and being in the hospital and like essentially as an only child I myself had to be very creative and like and imagine play and and so and dress up myself um so I can definitely relate to your story in that aspect so that's why I was just curious but I'm also wondering were you do you think that you were able to fully process at nine years old that like this might be the end of my life and the deeply understood and grasped that so something that was different because because the threat of death had always been there for me and still is always there for me you have a different mindset so I remember being six seven even eight years old and I would go to my mom and I'd say mom what's heaven like what's it like when I die and those were common questions for me because it was a reality that it could happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would ask, what is it going to be like? And I just assumed I would be going there soon. So it, it wasn't scary. It was just a reality. There was nothing I could do about it. So mm-hmm. I just lived in that reality. And actually my mom told me a story that I thought was very, very helpful for a young child because here I am facing the possibility of death at any time. And I'm asking, you know, what happens when I die? you know, because I'm six or whatever. And she says, well, it's kind of like you're driving a car. So in real life, you drive around, you drive in the car, but when you get out of the car, because you get to where you're going, you're still you, you're just not in your car anymore. And I was like, oh, 
That's simple, you know. So as a child, that made sense to me that, oh, I just won't be driving my car. I'll still be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, a great analogy. Yeah. So I'll just be at a different destination, but I'll just get out of my car. So, you know, that helped me prepare. And I, I think when you're always faced with that, you, you see a lot of kids that are young and sick and and they are more emotionally and mentally prepared for the possibility of death. And it doesn't necessarily scare them in the same way. It's more they understand that it's coming and there's a calmness about it because they've been prepared. Mm. So fortunately, that's that's our lives. Yeah. So. And then you said that you were able to, like your your values and your priorities were kind of shifted at that point. So what types of things did you do? Because I feel like you were fearless. You were just like, a go-getter <laughs> you're you've been traveling a bunch just be, from our previous conversations I know that um so can you share a little bit of like how you live your life not in the fear of death but rather like embracing it sure so post-surgery like I said I lived and I did well and I was I was kind of one of the success stories so what happened for me is all of a sudden my appetite increased a lot which was great because a lot of times when you're sickly you just don't eat you just don't feel well enough to eat. So my appetite increased. I began to feel ready to be more active. I mean, more active in perspective. I'm still a heart patient, but I'm more active. Um, you know, I became involved in singing. So some some kids take music lessons. I happen to take singing lessons. And I thrived. I did really well. So I became a competitive singer and, and sang all over my province and even my country because I would win at different levels and I would get to compete at different levels. I got involved in uh, music theater and I do often encourage um, heart patients or, or patients that have limitations, physical limitations, then rather than be discouraged by the fact that they can't do say sports, basketball or volleyball or whatever it is in, in high school that they can't do, think of what you can do. And sometimes that can be more of the drama, the acting, the writing, the something in, in that category, um, because that's got little stints of things and then you're off, right? So it allows a little more flexibility for people like myself. So that's how I got involved. I got involved in plays. Um, I ended up going to a music theater academy. That's like a private academy. And we would put on a production every year. And I mean, it was exhausting, but it was fun. I got to participate and, and I was never, I was never parented in such a way that I was told not to participate. It was just sort of do what you can. And when you're done, we'll, we'll, you know, if you need an app, we'll, we'll set you up for that. But there was never a, you can't do that. And so I am lucky that those limitations and fears were not transferred to me because a lot of parents, unfortunately, do transfer those fears to their children. And so they're like, well, they're so afraid that something could happen because it can that they would rather protect them. And so they write them out of PE and they tell them not to go on the, you know, the class trip or this and that, because something could happen. There's this fear. So I could lose you. Something could happen, but it really, um, I've seen patients who are now adults really struggle to move forward because of those mentalities. So I was just fortunate that I had a parent who didn't have that mindset. So I did something much crazier than I'm sure most heart patients like me did, but I participated in the student exchange program. And so I lived abroad for a year with wow. the heart condition. So here I am with literally three chambers rather than four living in a foreign country with essentially no medical 
and, you know, just living life. So I had the opportunity to live in Brazil. So I moved to Brazil, went to school, learned language, just like other people. And at this time, my teen years, because I'd had my surgery when I was nine, my teen years were quite healthy and fairly normal. So I was, mm-hmm. I was very lucky in those things. And like I say, I didn't have the, the negative mindset, the limitations of you can't. Yeah. You just kept going for it. Just kept going for it. So um, it was in my 20s that I started to um, have complications. Uh, most people who have a single ventricle and eventually have the Fontan procedure, there are a lot of post-surgical complications. Sometimes they'll be deferred 5, 10, maybe 15 years, but they will show up. And so some of those are progressive fatigue. Mm. We start to go into heart failure, which is when they're here at the decline point. Um, most of us have arrhythmias. So it can be um, uh, different types of arrhythmias, but we will have arrhythmias. Uh, some of us suffer from low oxygen. So some of us will have, have to wear oxygen most of the day. Um, some people do have a low protein. They lose their protein serums. And so that is a challenge. Um, we do unfortunately get liver cirrhosis due to the way that our hearts have been reformulated. We now have pressure on our liver. So we start to have cirrhosis and usually eventually organ failure. And so, and so with all of those post-surgical complications, another one that they're seeing significant challenges is that most Fontan patients struggle with very high anxiety levels because their bodies are essentially falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in my twenties. I started having arrhythmias. Um, so with arrhythmias, they can do things like um, it, when you're in your initial set of arrhythmia, they can bring you to the hospital and sometimes they can help with drugs and they'll slow it down and get it back into a normal rhythm. But I was not that fortunate. So I had to have a cardio version. So that's um, the electric paddles are put on you and they shock you just like they would at an arena. If if an athlete went down, they put the paddles on. Mm -hmm. So it's like that. Um, I, you can have cardio version. You can have up to four at a time maximum. So they start at like hundred kilojoules and they go 200 and then they go 300. And then the max they can do is 340 kilojoules. So they'll, they'll start at the minimum and try and charge up and see if they can get your heart back into that rhythm. So I've had in my twenties over 30 sets of cardio versions and 30 sets, 30 sets, 30 sets <laughs> yeah. of four, three or four, depending what they needed. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So a lot, a lot. Yes. So it, it, I mean, it's in, it's insane. My heart is still beating, but nonetheless, uh, it was in very bad shape. It was, it was failing, and it became so common that I would go to the emergency, and they'd be so excited. Oh, you're here! Can we bring in all the patients and or all the students? And they bring all the students in, and the students would work on me, and I'd be like, yes, yes. Here's how you do it. Here's how much I need. Here, you know, <laughs> here's how the battles go, and he <laughs> would become a professional. So yes, I've had a lot of cardioversions. Some what did that feel like? It feels awful, truly awful. So fortunately, they generally, as long as they are preparing you in advance, they will put you out, put you to sleep. Okay. Um, but 
a couple of challenges when you wake up is sometimes the team will not know to take off the paddles before you wake up. And that's very, very painful because it's like ripping off a sunburn. And so it's very, very painful. Yeah. But um, even if they manage to get that off before you wake up, you do feel kind of like you've been kicked in the chest by a horse. So just everything hurts like your whole, because your whole body has been shocked. So mm-hmm. all your muscles have contracted and contracted and it's just, you're drained and you're so tender and so sore. And you just want to cur- like lean over because your chest is so sore and it's, it's just painful. I mean, in the last few days, it's just like being in a very bad accident. Mm-hmm. So that's what that feels like. Um, so essentially I was on the road to heart failure at, at that point because I was starting to have so many arrhythmias. Some patients get, um, they get, uh, uh, what's this called? The balloon that goes in your heart, the angioplasty. Angioplasty. Mm-hmm. Some get angioplasty to sort of open things up and maybe that will help them. So I've had some of those. Um, some also have the doctors go in and they sort of, uh, shock the, or they electrocute the heart and try and stop where the bad rhythms are. Mm-hmm. So I've had that too. Um, that works for some people and not for others. In my case, it didn't really work, but I've, I've had them all. So I've tried everything, you know, <laughs> like sample the menu. See what works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically my right atrium, because I was born without a right ventricle in my particular condition. So my right atrium, when I was nine, was created to be both the top and the bottom chambers. They, it was doing the job of both, which worked well for a few years. But as you can imagine, any organ that is overworked eventually will become enlarged and stop being as effective as usual. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so, so that that's what happened to me. It became floppy, it became enlarged, and it really wasn't doing its job. So at that point, they had a couple of options they could look at. And this is still what their options are essentially right now is for patients whose hearts are overworked, overtaxed, or just getting into heart failure, they can look into organ transplant, or they can do basically a revision. Some people are having revision. A lot of people are choosing the organ transplant. I did, excuse me, I did have the choice at the time when I was, so I was 30 and they said, you know, we, we could do an organ transplant. We could do a revision. We think the revision might work, but if not, you'll have to get an organ transplant. So it, it was sort of a, what do you do? So I decided, you know, um, personally for me, I didn't want to go the route of organ transplant at that age. Um, I've heard that, unfortunately, not all organs are sustained as well in the second person as they are in the first. And being at only 30 years old, I'm like, how many times do I want to risk a heart transplant? You know, so, mm-hmm. so for me, my choice was to do the revision. I've done very well with the revision. So essentially, in layman's terms, they cut out the upper right part of your heart that was enlarged and not working. So I essentially now have half a heart. So I just have two chambers. I have the left top and the left bottom. And that's all. I have no functioning right side. I have no artificial pumping. I have nothing. Yep. I have tubes that normally your, your blood would go from the bottom, right to the top, right to your, uh, to your lungs back to your left. So because I don't have any right side, I just have tubes, Dacron tubing, and um, it's all pumped via gravity. There's no artificial pumper. 
which is super cool, <laughs> by super the way. Cool. I mean, I mean it, it's tricky. Yes. A very, I would assume intensive surgery too. Yeah. Um, and a, quite a recovery process. Quite you a recovery. mentioned you went to cardiac rehab. Ah, uh, yes. So here I am 30 years old. I now have half a heart and, um, I actually felt much better because that enlarged portion that was causing arrhythmias, uh, was removed. And at the time they put a pacemaker in for me as well, just to help ensure that my uh, rhythms would stay in place. So I got a pacemaker and I got half a heart. And so then they said, well, you know, you might want to go to cardiac rehab. And I was like, fantastic. So I go to rehab. And of course, I love to tell people I've been in rehab because I just think that's it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I went to rehab and I've actually been to rehab in two different facilities in two different provinces. And um, I would say the majority of the time, most of my class was all male and all you know, 70 plus years old. Mm -hmm. So here I am 30 years old. I appear to be healthy and young and they think I'm working and I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm a patient, you know? So, <laughs> um, that's, that's peculiar, but I was looking at, um, some of the stats on the American Heart Association and they were saying that a 40 year old Fontan patient has the same risk of death as a 75 year old. Wow as a normal person. So mm -hmm. like we're, we look young, but we're like an old person. Yeah. I mean, completely redefining the meaning of what it looks like to be healthy. That looks right? like to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I am physically active, but my physical activity is going to be that equal to someone who's maybe 70 or 75. So I will, <laughs> I will get on my bicycle and I will bicycle along and seniors will like ask me, you know, and like sometimes I'll go so slow, I fall over. I'm like, oh, okay. and you know, if I go in the pool and I do laps, like I'll go in the slow lane, but the seniors are like, lady, move over, you know, like I'm by far the slowest person, but I'm like, hey, I'm doing it. Yeah, you're out there, you're doing it anyway. I'm so. doing it. So I'm like, I don't care how slow I am, I do it. So yeah, I still, I do things a lot slower, but I do them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one question I had was how did your, all of the surgeries that you've had and everything, obviously you're living a fantastic life. Mm -hmm. You, you are not afraid to mm -hmm. take risks. Um, right. and so I'm, I'm curious what your, like growing up, what your mental health was like, as far as your body image and scars. I mean, we had kind of touched on interpersonal relationships too. What's the others? And can you tell me a little bit about that? Right. So I have, uh, the traditional scar down my chest. I also have scars around both sides, kind of where my bra line would be, cause that's where the shunts were. Mm -hmm. I have quite large scars on my abdomen from all the tubes and, and wires that they put in. And I also do have some kind of in the pelvic area, cause that's where they go in and do all the, um, like angioplasties and things like that. But if you've had it done so many times, eventually it will start to bump and scar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I do have a lot of scars. So definitely I'm like a patchwork quilt. Um, I think for me, you know, the first time it really uh, registered for me is I was probably grade five and I had my big chest scar and I'm at the pool and I hear a girl say to her mom, oh, look at her with that big scar. She's so ugly. 
And I thought, excuse me. Like, and I just knew at that time, this girl must be dumb because she doesn't realize how hard I have had to work for this scar. And I understood the value because I had to do the physio. I had to take all the medicine that made you feel horrible and do all the things that the doctors told me to do to recover. And I felt value for those scars because I had worked really hard to get better and to maintain my health. And even now it's like, I have scars, but I'm here and I am healthy and my, my skin is, you know, nice, healthy tone and things like that, that are not as common. And so I work hard to stay as healthy as I am. And so these are badges of honor for me. That's how I've always viewed it. So, and, and of course, you know, when you're, in grade school and you know the boys come in and say oh I scrapped up my thumb and I got like three stitches I'm like three stitches move over you know like <laughs> you're like that's nothing compared to what I got <laughs> so that's always how I viewed it um I think that for me you know essentially uh my condition is we're somewhat always terminal um so right now they're saying that Today's estimate of survival rate of people post-Fontan, so after their big surgery, 20 years post-Fontan is between 60 and 80% survival rate, but 30 years past that, it drops down about 43%. And so, um, you know, it's not it's not great odds for me at this point, but um, I'm like, I'm in the 40%, I'm making yes, it, and I just, I just claim that 40%. Um, you know, we do see a lot of, Fontan patients drop off in their 30s and especially their 40s um, due to complications, infections, um, heart, just hearts can't keep up. Um, there are a lot of challenges. So I am now 47 and I'm probably not one of the oldest, but definitely an older group of Fontan patients. Mm -hmm. by far. Mm -hmm. And you, you've fully gone through the Fontan procedure or is there still more so to be done at this point because i've had the fontan and i've already had the revision there's really not there's only like two chambers left so they can't just keep poking at that anymore there's not much mm -hmm. left they can. so essentially right now they are monitoring me for how quickly am i declining it's not really a matter of if it's when and so how quickly and when am i declining so that they can maximize that peak again and ensure that I get treatment before I go into full heart failure. And unfortunately, the only option at this point is a full transplant. Mm -hmm. So most of my cohort are getting transplants. I would say seems like two thirds of them already have transplants at a significantly younger age than I have. Um, so sometimes they're getting a single, like they'll get a heart transplant, but a lot of them are actually getting a heart and liver because their liver becomes so compromised. So um, that seems to me like pretty serious. So that's that's kind of the next stage for me. So I'm one of the rare patients that have been very outspoken to my doctor and said, I would love to have an artificial heart. Mm -hmm. So when you get that, like, let me know, sign me up. I will happily take that. <laughs> not at all that I have anything against anybody's donations because, I mean, I've had transfusions and all of those things, and I'm very grateful for them. But um I don't want to have to deal with the anti-rejection medication and the effects it can have on my body. So yeah, being partly mechanical now, I, I really like 
that they can log in, they can see diagnosis, they can like tweak a few things by logging into their computer. And I'm like, this is fantastic. You know? so <laughs> I was like, if I go this route, sign me up. So I'm hoping to live long enough to get an artificial heart, but we'll see. Yeah. And that's your choice. And yeah, it's, it's crazy choice. as far as like what they can do with technology now and medicine. And so mm-hmm. if that's the way that you want to go, I say you do it. Yeah. I mean, I understand when people don't, their life is not, it doesn't allow them the choice because their health is at the point where they have to get a, sure. a transplant. I'm always surprised when I meet other patients like me who sometimes make choices that I just don't understand. I met a lady recently who was probably mid thirties and she had the choice of a transplant or palliative care. And she chose palliative care. And I just thought, well, that's a hundred percent guarantee of what's happening. Like there's not even right. a, a right. question of where the, where that one ends. So, you know, it's surprising to me. And most of my cohort, I've talked to them about, you know, would you get an artificial heart? And I have had no support in that direction. They all say, oh, I would never do that. And I'm like, really? Huh? Okay. I'm the odd one out here, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's everyone's individual choice. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, wrapping up here, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. If you were to give one piece of advice to, um, listeners or something that you really just want our listeners to know, um, what would that be? Sure. I recently heard a quote from an Olympic swimmer who, from the 70s that this other gentleman had mentioned to me. And he said that the quote went that winners focus on what they want to have happen and losers focus on what they don't want to have happen. And I've kind of engaged that in my everyday is I could look at the stats and I could look at my condition and say, oh, all these things could happen. I don't want this and I don't want that. But instead, I focus on, wow, I get to have a, a nice life today. It's a beautiful sunny day. I get to walk today. And I, I focus on the good things that I get to do and that I want to have in my life, how I want to build my life, who I surround myself with. And I just really focus on those positive things because the negative things will or won't happen however they will. I can't change them. But it, but I can really create a very positive um, environment for myself to grow and enjoy my life. So that's really what I focus on. I love that. Like you, there, there are so many, what if scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. If we were to lay them all out on a table, but you have to keep focusing on what's in front of you. And I think your mindset is, plays a big part in that. So I think that's great. I know my doctors have mentioned almost every time I visit, they say, if it weren't for your um, positive mindset, you would probably be dead because unfortunately most of my cohort are by this age. So yeah. like, yep. But yeah. I just, I just think of all the good things I've got going. I've got a great life. Yeah. You're proving them wrong. <laughs> I'm proving them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can people reach out if they have questions, if they want to follow you? I know you also have a podcast of your own. Pimp yourself out. Yeah, you bet. So I have a podcast I've just started also for patients where I interview a variety of types of patients and we discuss the mental and emotional health journey of patients. And my podcast is called Sick Like Us, as I am one of them. And so uh, that is also my website, sicklikeus.com. If you want to follow up with me, that's where you can reach me. Awesome. And I will link all of your contact information, your podcast, all that in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. 
You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. I really hope that everyone stayed until the end of this episode because Roma is such an inspirational person. I mean, I could not fathom being told at nine years old that I might not survive. That was just something in my mind that I've never thought about. And even to this day, I think a lot of us can relate to that. We we go through the motions every single day and we don't really want to deal or think about mortality. And I think she's completely right. Her mindset has really enabled her to appreciate the little things in life and the big things, but living her life knowing that she might not make it tomorrow or next month or next year, but that's not really going to limit what she is able to do. So I really want you to internalize that for yourself because you have most likely endured something heart-related that has now shaken your world and kind of turned it upside down. And so rather than curling in and hermiting, how can you take life by the horns? How can how can you make lemon or lemonade out of lemons? And yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just so excited by this episode. If you want to contact Roma, I'm going to put all of her contact info in the show notes. Please reach out to her, reach out to me, stay happy, stay healthy. This is Devin.